Okay. Well, there are two stories. Uh, I don't know if there'll be time for both of them, but I'll start in. Now, it may seem strange to link the origins of Black Athena with that of the invasion of Iraq, the uh, US uh, Anglo invasion of Iraq. But interestingly enough, they come from the same uh, place. Uh, now, I don't know how many of you are Hoovians around here. Um, now, well, I'll, I'll come back to that bit, yes. Uh, here, uh, I think I'm often accused of being anti-European or a race traitor in other terms. And that's not uh, my intention. I'm a great uh, admirer of Europe. But what I am against is the idea of Europe as having made itself, as being a purely uh, autochthonous uh, source. And I think that uh, Europe, and I accept the conventional view that Greece, ancient Greece, was central, one of the main centers of the origins of, uh, of Europe. And therefore, I've been looking at Greece, and the hybridity of Greece seems to me a very important message to get across. So I'm not against uh, Europe. I'm against purity here. Now, <clears throat> and I'm also against the monopolization of world or Western culture by Europe. I think one must see it in a multi-continental uh, framework. Uh, and so those are the things that I'm really uh, opposing. Now, back, I skip to the Whovians, people who follow Doctor Who. I don't know if there are any serious <laughs> scholars around here who've watched uh, Doctor Who, and particularly the moving ep uh, episode uh, where you see the birth of the Daleks. I don't know if anyone you saw that. Well, I saw the birth of the neoconservatives in the US. Uh, and it was at Cornell University where I was teaching, and even more specifically, at a intellectual fraternity called Telluride House. And I, was, I lived in that house uh, on and off for three years in the early 70s, from 72 to 75. Uh, now, there are three <coughs> Cornell professors uh, that one uh, needs to look at here. And one is Ben-Sion uh, uh, Netanyahu. Uh, you may not know about him. He was a very distinguished uh, historian of uh, the Inquisition and of Jewish uh, history. Uh, and he taught at Cornell for a period, about five or ten years, five to ten years. Um, but he is best known for his two sons, Yonatan and Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, Yonatan was known because he was killed in the raid on Entebbe, rescuing the hostages uh, at uh, Entebbe. Uh, Benjamin, who survived, uh, has become the leading ultra-right-wing figure in uh, Israeli politics. And he follows in his father, who, was a, uh, who himself, the father, was a follower of uh, Jabotinsky and the revisionists and the most right-wing uh, of the uh, Israeli expansionists. Um, now, <coughs> so these are a Cornell connection, that he was a uh, professor at Cornell. Benjamin didn't actually study at Ithaca High School, 
but he felt an attachment towards Ithaca, which is a town of Cornell. Now, the two professors who are linked to specifically to Telluride are uh, Jakob Wolfowitz, who was a, a mathematician, a very distinguished mathematician, and he comes into the story because of his son, Paul Wolfowitz, who you may have heard of. Uh, and <coughs> another professor there was Alan Bloom, who wrote a book which was wildly popular and sold millions of copies. I think the right-wingers all felt they should buy, buy one. Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's a period piece now. Uh, but um, Alan Bloom was the leading proponent of the ideas of Leo Strauss, who was a German refugee, uh, German-Jewish refugee in America, uh, and believed in the close study of uh, Plato and other chosen classical writers in a Talmudic way, looking at every line and why should this matter and what's significant here. And Leo Strauss, <coughs> Uh, and they had a very early 19th century view of classical Greece. It was a, a pure and um, uh, the origin of everything that wasn't Jewish in Western culture. Um, so you have uh, now, Wolf Paul Wolfowitz lived in Telluride House when Bloom was the faculty member <coughs> in residence. Uh, and in fact, Alan Bloom persuaded uh, Paul to change subjects from mathematics, his father's field, to, <coughs> uh, to political science. And that was the beginning of Paul's academic career, his, his stellar academic and later political career. Um, and he, uh, now Paul, uh, Jakob, Wolf, Wolf, sorry, uh, Wolfowitz's father, refused to speak to Alan Bloom, and it was attributed to having made Paul change his field. I think there's something more to it, that uh, uh, Bloom believed in Socratic teaching of a very intimate kind, uh, and I think that that is what was suspected by the father, whether or not it was <laughs> uh, uh, why he, uh, as they used to say, I don't know if I should say this in public. Um, once is philosophy, twice is sodomy. Was the <laughs> that, um, about him. Anyhow, uh, Wolfowitz is history. You know, you know about that. But this atmosphere, this hot house atmosphere of Telluride House in the early 70s was very much what led to this. And it became a very strong center of right-wing thought at just the point when Cornell was swinging left with the general radical movement of the uh, late 60s, early 70s. The Telluride went in the opposite direction. And a man who was the best friend of Bloom, Werner Danhauser, was in residence when I was there. But there were some bright students. Uh, Frank Fukuyama, I don't know if any of you know, uh, uh, who wrote the <coughs> end of history. It's nice to know it's over. Uh, and. <laughs> Another a woman called Laurie Milroy, who you probably haven't heard of. Has anyone heard of Laurie Milroy? She was uh, very close to Danhauser and was involved in, interested in Middle Eastern politics and was a great enthusiast for Saddam Hussein and was trying to bring Saddam Hussein and the Israeli government together 
in the, uh, in the 80s. Uh, but she turned against him violently uh, and became a passionate opponent of, uh, of, 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 the, uh, of Saddam and the whole regime, the Neobathist regime. And she, uh, <coughs> uh, she was convinced after the first attack on the World uh, Trade Center, the one that took place in the cellar uh, beneath the, the parking lot beneath the thing, and she was convinced Saddam Hussein was behind it. And she started writing essays about it. And the uh, economic neoconservatives loved it. But they wanted to grab Iraq anyhow, and she was providing them with a pretext for blaming Iraq for the World Trade Center. <coughs> Uh, and so she was picked up by the American Enterprise Institute and introduced to people like Richard Pearl and distantly to Cheney and was part of that gang, providing them with the uh, information or false information that they wanted. And she wrote a book on uh, the wickedness of Saddam with a woman called Judith Miller, who I don't know if you've heard of. Yeah. Judith Miller was a correspondent in the New York Times who played a critical role in saying it was essential or prudent to invade Iraq. And the fact that she had enormous influence within the New York Times meant that she was able uh, to uh, get her essays out on the front page time and time again, which had a very important role in persuading American liberals that maybe there is something to it, that they wouldn't have believed Bush and Cheney when they said it, but when the New York Times said that, uh, <coughs> that Saddam was behind the attack on the, the big attack, the 9-11 attack, uh, so that she, Laurie Milroy, and with Judith Miller together played a critical role in persuading uh, and building up the hysteria uh, about Iraq in the post-9-11 uh, situation. Now, it was in this atmosphere that I arrived at Cornell. And I left Cambridge and went to Cornell partly because I hoped that there would be less Eurocentrism at Cornell and people would take <coughs> the study of China seriously. Uh, and in fact, I did get that on Cornell campus, but in, uh, <coughs> at, uh, uh, in Telluride, they were not interested in what I had been interested in. They were just interested in their interpretations of Plato and their uh, belief in the evil of all, uh, all Arabs and the need to uh, punish and go on. So you have this atmosphere uh, having an effect on me. Now, I had always been very fond of my classicist friends in, at Cambridge, and I'd linked, I felt identified with them. We were sort of liberals or socialists uh, and for things that were gentle and progressive. And here I was finding a form of uh, uh, Helenophilia that I found uh, really very distasteful and that really alerted me politically to the possibility of misuse of ancient Greece in that way. So uh, that was uh, the atmosphere. <coughs> oh, have these come in the right order? Uh, okay, well, <laughs> I'm happy here. Uh, now, the second story, which is on blackness in the creation of the Aryan model. Um, now, things that you could describe as racist or the, uh, prejudices against people who look 
unlike the physical norm of the population as a whole, happen in uh, virtually all societies. But new racism, the racism that grew up on the Atlantic slave trade, uh, starts in the 17th century and it isn't really codified until the 1680s when you get <coughs> uh, the division of the world into four races uh, and a theoretical basis set up by a man called Francois Bernier, I'm afraid I didn't put his name, who I think had, was inspired to do this by the Indian caste system. He had been a doctor for Aurangzeb the Mughal uh, and he wrote this and it's after this that you start getting theoretical documents like the French official Code Noir. And the importance of the Code Noir was that previously slavery had been justified in terms of religion, that it was legitimate to enslave um, <coughs> heretics, pagans, uh, people beyond Christianity or beyond Islam on the other sense, that you could do it that way. Uh, and the idea of detaching uh, the religious aspect and saying it is just physical appearance that can justify uh, slavery is something that happens in the late 17th century. Now, <coughs> as I argue in Volume 1, the change uh, from the ancient to the Aryan model doesn't take place for another 150 years, or not really, until the early 19th century. Uh, so, uh, why didn't it take place earlier, or why did it take, <coughs> uh, or why did it take then, then, take place then? Now, the view in the 18th century, uh, where views were divided, uh, it was generally recognized that Egypt was civilized and the source of Western civilization. I mean, that's what the ancients had written, uh, and that's what was uh, accepted. But these people who were becoming increasingly racist in the 18th century, uh, did got around this quite easily, and they said, well, the Egyptians weren't really Africans. They were Asiatic or, uh, or white in some sense, that the, so that it didn't, so that uh, civilization began with Egypt, to a lesser extent uh, Mesopotamia, but, but essentially they saw it as Egypt, and, uh, or you could take, and this was a view of the Enlightenment, the view that uh, enlightened scholars had of, of Egypt leading to Greece, leading to Rome, leading to us, uh, was the, the basic line. Now look, another uh, minor uh, key was the belief that Egypt was African and not civilized. Uh, and this is what the Romantics <coughs> believed, or uh, people like uh, Winkelmann and, and Herder uh, said that uh, of course, the Egyptians couldn't produce art because they had no beautiful models, unlike the, uh, <coughs> unlike the Greeks. Uh, and so you have this thing of Egypt either being white and civilized or being African and not civilized. But in the late 18th century, you begin to get a new view that Egypt was black and civilized, combining the two. And the key figure behind this was the Scottish uh, laird uh, James Bruce, who was uh, a startling, eccentric uh, figure, who traveled widely in the Mediterranean, 
uh, hired a Cypriot priest to teach him how to pronounce Greek, uh, to get away from Erasmus, uh, and wanted to be really uh, authentic in this way. And he traveled up the Nile and the Red Sea and went to Ethiopia. Uh, he had various motives. One was to discover the source of the Nile. Another may have been to discover the source of religion. So James Bruce uh, traveled in Ethiopia, hung out with the empress there, and uh, traveled around. And he saw signs in Ethiopia of uh, what he thought were ancient Egyptian traits. I mean, the calendar, and, but also various monuments and things like that. Anyhow, his conclusion was to take the line put forward by Diodorus Siculus that uh, Egypt, or Upper Egypt at least, had been colonized by Ethiopians. And he was explicit that these Ethiopians had uh, black skins and tight curly hair. He called them Kushites, but he said these are the people who uh, settled Thebes in Upper Egypt or uh, had introduced art and particularly astronomy, which he considered the most important aspect. And so Bruce, uh, now Bruce uh, was traveling uh, around these places and came back to Europe and uh, start, uh, but spent some time in France and was really in touch with French intellectuals in the decade before the revolution. Uh, which was really a ferment of new ideas. And he had a big uh, influence uh, on intellectuals there. In fact, having not gone back to Britain, was used as a weapon against him. Uh, that, the, uh, uh, that he had spent so much time with these foreigners. And Dr. Johnson hated him, because Dr. Johnson felt a uh, particular attachment to... Uh, to Ethiopia. He wrote an epic called Rasselas on Ethiopia and was very sympathetic towards blacks. He said that his uh, manservant, uh, Francis Bar Barber, was the most intelligent man he knew uh, and he generally uh, uh, was pushing blacks and hating the white planters. And he once uh, toasted to the next uprising of Negro slaves in the West Indies. Uh, and this shocked a number of people. But his essential motive was conservative. That what Johnson disliked was the new sugar money coming in and disturbing the hierarchy in England. Now, <clears throat> uh, Bruce himself was conservative. He, had, uh, he thought that slavery was good for you because it stopped cannibalism. Uh, and, uh, he, there was, but he did stress the importance of the uh, blacks in, uh, in Egypt. And his ideas taken up by French radicals took on a very difficult, different political hue. And they started using the argument that uh, how can we enslave the people from whom we derived civilization? Uh, it was ungrateful and immoral to do this. So you have that view of uh, the <coughs> that blacks uh, had started civilization. They had started Egypt and from Egypt uh, Western civilization. 
and that this was now being used as an abolitionist argument. First of all, by French writers like uh, Charles-François Dupuis and Chasper um, de Volney. Uh, and these people were writing in the ferment of the French Revolution uh, and published in French and uh, English. Uh, they spread around the Anglo-Saxon world, uh, including the US, uh, where they were uh, very much taken up, not naturally by the New Republic, uh, by Jefferson, who in fact uh, hated the translations, tried to get them banned, uh, and didn't like them, but, um, but by African-American intellectuals. Uh, so, yeah, um, so you have the African-American uh, intellectuals uh, dealing with this. I have what's happened to his chance? Yes. The most uh, articulate of these was a man called David Walker, uh, who wrote this appeal to the colored people of the world and to those of the United States in particular. Uh, and he argued that civilization came from black Egypt, uh, and <coughs> that this made what the new American whites were doing particularly immoral. Uh, so you have uh, this line coming out. Uh, Walker was murdered fairly soon after publication of his, uh, this appeal, but it had an enormous influence among uh, American blacks. Now, there was a tension here because, of course, in the main uh, black tradition, Egypt was the enemy. Pharaoh was the enemy. Uh, the identification of the people of Israel uh, uh, escaping from Pharaoh. So you have uh, tension here as to which you should support. Uh, now, uh, Sinclair Drake, who was a wonderful scholar in this area, whose uh, works I recommend to everybody, um, divided the support among the northern free black intellectuals uh, who tended to be interested in Egypt and in promoting Egypt, which is something that never happened in the 18th century. There was no mention of it. Uh, in fact, there was great hostility. Uh, but, and in the 19th century, the intellectuals, free intellectuals, supported Egypt, whereas those people under slavery uh, still identified with Israel, as we can see from the spirituals and the whole uh, line uh, here of the uh, of Israel uh, being the, the model uh, for uh, African Americans, um, <coughs> and this was uh, powerful. I mean, the tension was such, but Freemasons pushed Egypt, and the Black Freemasons were very important here, uh, and the Haitian Revolution, for instance, uh, was very aware and conscious of an Egyptian uh, model to follow. Um, and this is uh, outlined by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, writing at the very end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Uh, so you have the new. Uh, and But this abolitionist belief, whoops, um, here's an interesting <coughs> statement from uh, John Stuart Mill, who was writing uh, against um, uh, Sage of Ecclesiastes, uh, Carlyle, uh, who had uh, talked about the end 
problem. Uh, and here you have uh, a very articulate statement by uh, John Stuart Mill, published in 1850, but illustrating this view. It is curious withal that the earliest known civilization was, we have the strongest reason to believe, a Negro civilization. It was from Negroes, therefore, that the Greeks learnt their first lessons in civilization, and it was to these Negroes did Greek philosophers to the end of their career resort. Uh, so you have this belief that Egypt is a source and it's black, so that the previous thing of you had the choice between uh, a white Egypt as a source of civilization or black Egypt as nothing to do with it uh, being um, essential. Now that disappears with the abolition of slavery in the US in the 1860s, but the so-called Afrocentrist uh, tradition uh, preserves this, uh, that it is, uh, but for Afrocentrists, oh, we seem to have lost a lot of these things. I'll have to, I'll have to wing it. Um, the, the Afrocentrists uh, preserved this tradition of a black Egypt having been the source. Now, for classicists uh, in the 1820s, uh, this was a very painful thing because it was a period of intensifying racism. Uh, and how could Greece, the source of Western civilization, be derived from blacks? It was just intolerable. But they didn't feel able to challenge the line of the uh, blackness of Egypt so the line they took instead was to make a categorical separation between Egypt and, and Greece. Uh, and this is the beginning of the Aryan model, to make, that, uh, uh, to make that distinction. And so you get uh, the writers in the 1820s, uh, particularly Karl Ottfried Müller, uh, but, and then this German Germany was the engine that drove classics or created classics uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, uh, but then taken over in, uh, in Britain. Uh, and <coughs> this belief that, the, uh, that uh, there was a categorical uh, separation between Egypt and Greece, which had now become essential where it had not been before, uh, because of the blackness, that it was the racism of the European intellectuals in the 1820s, intensified, of course, by the Greek War of Independence in the 1820s, and the belief that, uh, <coughs> uh, that Europe, uh, young Europe, uh, had transcended all that had gone before it, uh, and that uh, the, the, so Greece had to be uh, a purely European civilization uh, and distinct from the others. Um, let's see if I can get anything else from... Uh, no, I'm sorry about that. Um, so... It is this uh, fear of blackness, I think, drove the categorical separation 
Uh, it was bound to come, uh, but whether, and, and I think that uh, Bruce and his labeling of Egyptian civilization as black uh, was critical to that, but if it hadn't been Bruce, something else similar, I think, would have arisen, uh, that there is no way that Egypt, even though not black in most views before Bruce, uh, was uh, sufficiently dubious in color, and color became obsessional uh, in, the, uh, in the early 19th century and had to be uh, removed. Now, and therefore the connection to Greece and the idea of Greece as pure, which was not at all the view of uh, 18th century scholars. And even people in the 19th century, like Gobineau, thought that Greece was hopelessly mixed and hybrid, you know, uh, his denying it. So that the pure white Greece, the Greece of white fluted columns, uh, which came to dominate in the middle of the 19th century, uh, was not there. I mean, <coughs> you have uh, people maintaining the old view, like Florence Nightingale, when she went up the Nile. Uh, she kept on saying, all our civilization can be seen in the tomb paintings, that the elegance and the beauty uh, of these paintings is just like what we Europeans have. But they were definitely seen by her in the 1850s and the 1840s and 1850s as, uh, uh, as, as, as white. So my clear-cut uh, historiographical division between the uh, fall of the ancient model and the rise of the Aryan model has to be qualified. It's one of the many mistakes, I think, in volume one, uh, is that it was much more blurred. Sorry. Uh, that Florence Nightingale should still be seeing the uh, Egyptians as white and the source of European civilization um, shows that it was surviving, this view was surviving into the uh, middle and even the late uh, 19th century that Strindberg uh, also uh, disliked uh, the people who tried to separate Egypt from Greece uh, so that it, the, the clear lines I drew would have to be blurred. I still think the basic shift is there, uh, but it is not as neat and sharp uh, as I thought. On the other hand, I'm sure I think Black Athena Volume 1 would, be, uh, would not be as good as it is if I had known all the uh, <coughs> complications and uh, subtleties that accuracy would have, should have <laughs> Okay, I'll leave it there. I'm sorry I've missed a uh, very simple uh, place here. Yeah.